0: It's Friday, January fourth. Welcome to episode eight of Insert Content Here.
1: Insert Content Here. Words intentionally unclear. Rap, papadido,
0: no Insert Content Here. Hi, I'm your host Jeff Eaton, a senior architect at Lullabot. Um, welcome to Insert Content Here, a uh, podcast about content strategy and uh, content tactics and all of that stuff that we put on the web when we're not writing code. Um, I'm here with Karen McGrain, good friend and a previous guest from Insert Content Here, um, and we're actually just going to have a somewhat mellow episode, and we're going to be looking over some of the best articles that came out over 2012. So welcome. It's great to have you back again.
1: Thank you so much. I love any opportunity to talk to you, especially if it's an opportunity that means I don't have to write a blog post.
0: <laughs> oh, you no, know, there's scheduling stuff around the podcasting and things like that, but it's like, Oh, there's so little editing. You know, you, you don't have that go back and try to figure out if that paragraph works just right. It's like, ah, oh, we were talking.
1: Ah, editing. We haven't had any editing on the web for what? 15 years now. It's working great.
0: <laughs> oh goodness. Well, I wanted to say, like, it, it feels like it's really been a red letter, a, a red letter year, a banner year for um for a lot of content related stuff. Like, a uh, yearbook came out, uh, content everywhere came out. Some of the different, you know, examples and case studies that we've been looking at over the past several years for things like you know multi-channel publishing and content reuse—they're starting to hit like a more mature state where we can learn some, be- you know, learn some new lessons from them. It just it just feels like there's a lot of really great stuff going on.
1: Yeah, I. When you suggested doing this, I went back through my links and pinboard to see what things I'd recommend or what articles really intrigued me this year. And there was a lot. It was, it was tough to choose. There were so many good, interesting things written. And I was so engaged in the subject this year that, that uh, I'm really looking forward to, to looking backwards.
0: I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled. Dude, I, I'll, I'll, I'll kick it off, actually. There's one of the one of the posts that actually got me thinking about this first was um, something that um, Anil Dash wrote. um, I think it was uh, about mid-year or so, called "Stop Publishing Web Pages." Basically, it was just like this impassioned plea for um, for companies trying to build dynamic web pages to start thinking in terms of like discrete streams of content that their site exposes and sort of remixes into um, you know web experiences in in sort of like an app-like fashion rather than just thinking of like building these discrete like portal pages or you know assembling this 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 discrete thing that lives at a particular url that's what users will go to for this particular assembly of content that we have and i think that's one of those things that that sort of it, it taps into this undercurrent through through all of you know the the articles we're talking about a real sort of shift in how we think about like how big websites actually get put together and assembled
1: yeah, I think I I was hoping we would start with Anil's post as well because I think that was probably one of the most widely read and you're right, impassioned pleas for some of the things that we're talking about. And one of the things that I liked about it is I think it conveyed to people who might not get down into the nitty-gritty of how the CMS works or what an API is sort of communicated the idea of, hey, we've got to move away from this page-based model because our content is going to have to live in all of these different new containers. And so you know, I think he's, he's trying to address it from a very strategic angle, talking about how advertising is going to work, talking about the, the business goal, really, to get content to flow across different devices and different forms of media. And then he doesn't get into the nuts and bolts of how to actually do that other than to uh, mention that we should be outputting content to APIs. But I think it's great to have somebody of his status within the, the industry saying, hey, we've got to change the way we do things. Now go make it happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, and the go make it happen is the fun part. Right, <laughs> exactly. It, it it actually ties in really well with um, something that Michael Kara, uh, a uh, user advocate on Twitter, said in a recent presentation at, I think, Drupal Camp Toronto. One of, the, one of the comments that he made, I don't think it was part of I don't think it was the really big theme of the whole session that he was giving, but he said something about that same idea of getting away from thinking of sites uh, that we're building as like a collection of pages we're assembling. And one of the things that he said was that a page is a unit of business intent. Not a unit of content, yeah, I love be, that quote. It, it could be made of lots of pieces of content. It could just be one, but we have to start thinking of it as like a given URL, a given page is something that we want to accomplish, and it it doesn't necessarily map one to one with a file or a piece of content or something like that, the way we used to be so familiar with you know back in the old ye olden days
1: yeah, and i i am, I feel I have to mention. Uh, Dean Barker's post from today. Um, he's Gadgetopia on Twitter. He wrote a, a post about content reuse and the problem of narrative flow. Oh yes, I
0: was where just reading that.
1: Oh yeah, I know. Technically, it's 2013, but we'll we'll slide that one in because it's really top of mind for me right now. He's talking about it from um, you know, kind of from looking at it from the other angle, which is would it actually be possible to manage content for reuse down to the paragraph level and what the challenges are of actually being able to have content creators write content that, that could work that way.
0: Aye, aye, aye.
1: And the truth is it's, it's like we are, we're human beings. We, we need some narrative flow. We need to be able to have the the right connections made and the tools that we often describe as structural tools are, you know, in many cases, they are, they are cues to the reader um, about what the jumps are between topics or between mm-hmm. ideas. And it's very difficult to have robots do that. In fact, you're much better off having, having actual human beings do that. And I, I, I think it's like it's great to see so many smart people from different different aspects of the industry sort of poking at this same problem of saying okay well but then what is a page what is a chunk what what is a what does a heading convey and you know what are all these other aspects of structural markup whether that's bullet points or block quotes or or anything that we might use to in the cms provide some 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 chunks some some discrete elements there how does that actually connect up with what we can have robots do and how a person's actually going to be able to read it and make sense of it
0: yeah that that issue of like it, it almost feels like some of the structural work going on in publishing is starting to edge up towards like more awareness of the user experience issues that have for a long time been focused like on Visitors of websites, not necessarily the people on the back end and, that, and that's you know something that I think we we've ranted about you know more than a few times, but it, it is interesting to see it really affect um, the discrete modeling questions for the structured content too
1: yeah, I think there's so much work to be done on understanding what's going to make sense and be feasible for content creators and I, I'm really excited to imagine a world where A lot of the great work that we've done in the user experience for the front end gets effectively translated into designing better tools for people on the back end. And there's all kinds of lessons to be learned, I think, from what worked and what didn't in tools in the past. Um, There's a lot of work that's been done in technical communications for, for technical publications about what worked and what didn't for their their content creators or how much training they had to put in or how much expertise people had to have in writing a certain way. And I think it'd be great to be able to look at some of that and say, Hey, let's try to not make these same mistakes again.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Three cheers for letting other people make the mistakes and write articles about them. Right. Um, I, I I don't want to like get too distracted because there's a couple of these other really interesting links, but it w- one of the things I found really fascinating about um, Dean's uh, article uh, about um, about reuse and like that that really really granular level paragraph modeling is it's so similar to a, a project that we worked on you know earlier you know the Lullabot and and I, you were you were also a part of that um, where uh, you know a client had wanted to literally model a huge repository of information down to the paragraph level where each one was like a discrete object with all kinds of reuse capabilities and stuff like that and it was a real real challenge from from a user experience standpoint and even just a storage standpoint of figuring out how do you actually make sense of these things you know especially if you're if you're working with a system that wasn't built ground up to model things that discreetly. it, it was a really interesting challenge
1: yeah i think you see the limitations of our current web content management tools in being able to really effectively support that. They're not not designed to do that. Mm -hmm. And at least from my point of view, you see the real restrictions on how understandable an interface that does that is going to be for the the average user of that system. And... uh, I can I, I you can make a case for saying, oh well no, all of our we're gonna train people and all of the people who are gonna have the keys to this, this system are gonna know how this works. But that that scares me a little bit. I mean <laughs> it, it it makes me wonder like, you know, what happens if the, the the guy who really knows how this system works wins the lottery and yeah. all of a sudden one day nobody can update the
0: intranet anymore. I mean, in, in some ways, it just feels like this is like another one of those eternal cycles. Like the whole idea of, you know, way back in the day, the idea was that, you know, SQL, you know, the structured query language for communicating with databases was a human readable language to pull information from databases so like any office worker could simply go in and generate their reports and pull up information because you know with SQL there no one would even really need to learn you know it would just be hey you could just use it and the database would be your oyster you know and it, it, what actually happened was then we got database administrators and professionals who work with that full time and it, it's interesting how like attempting to you know, bring really complex, you know, structured data to people. It it is a big challenge, no matter how many, like, tools we think we throw at it.
1: I know. I love the quote from Tony Byrne in Dean's article where he talks about up-chunking, which is (laughs) (laughs) the process of making your content model more Mm coarse-grained so it could be actually managed. That, right there, I, I... I think we, I could just like pause for a moment and go, huh, yep. This is all cyclical. Yep. All this has happened before all this will happen again.
0: Well, it's funny. There's a, the, a phrase that has been around for, you know, eons, but I think it started gaining popularity in the Drupal community a couple of years ago as we started having lots of discussions about, you know, how to, how to build abstraction layers and stuff like that. It's, you know, there, there's no problem that can't be solved by more abstraction except for too much abstraction. And, it's it, you know, the, the chunking, uh, the structured chunking stuff for content, it's like, you know, every every discrete piece of information that you pull off and treat as a separate little entity, you gain additional flexibility in a lot of ways. But then when you hit the wall and you've done too much and people can't actually manage it, you know you can 't solve that by additional fine grain breakdowns. You have to sort of figure out how to roll things backwards
1: yeah, and that 's totally where you 're going to have people come back in and say, "Hey, you know what would be great is if we just had like a page and <laughs> we could put some formatting in there and it'd be it'd be great it'd be really simple
0: oh goodness." uh (laughs) well one of the i think one of the other one of the other articles that i really liked um because we've we've been doing more you know real the soup to nuts responsive stuff um in a couple of our projects and one of the articles that i thought was really good was um vexing viewports um on a list apart Mm -hmm. um it was actually like a collaborative article by um a bunch of different people um luke Robowski um Liza Gardner and a couple of other people who've all been doing um a lot of responsive work and dealing with like multi-device targeting. And it was a really, really interesting overview of the issues around like this concept of the viewport and how lots of different tablet and smartphone devices and stuff like that represent the concept of like this page that we have to do stuff on with HTML and CSS and but how that actually appears to people who are looking at a device and just a lot of the just tangly complexities that go around that. They they I mean, I don't think there's any way just to eliminate the complexity there, but I th- I feel like they did a really good job of giving people a, a really good understanding of what the different angles of that are.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm actually looking at the the email thread that Luke kicked off on the future friendly group talking about. He called it a call to arms to say the the iPad Mini in particular makes web browsing suck because of the the bum viewport size, but it's a much bigger problem and one that that you're right it takes a collaborative group of people with expertise across a variety of areas to say hey we got to fix this.
0: And like this, you know, the, over the holidays I've got a Nexus Seven now, which is it, it's a really cool little Android tablet. And it's like that seven-inch form factor, but it's also high resolution, which means that, you know, you look at a page on that tablet, and it's not a web page adapted to seven inches. It's a web page adapted to a particular screen resolution. Right. And the realization that, you know, not only do we have different sizes, but we've got different densities on all the screens. And I think Apple's transition to Retina, I think, gave a lot of a sort of a false sense of security for how... High DPI devices were going to be, you know, it's like, oh, our our graphics will need extra work, but that's really all we'll have to deal with, and it, it's not not quite so easy.
1: I think one of the the couple of the articles that I liked most this year were the ones that came from Mark Bolton, and yeah. I think I think he wrote um, one called "Structure First, Content Always" that is, was really talking about the the relationship between design and content in the process. And then later in the year, he wrote one on that he called Adaptive Content Management, which looked at from his point of view, looking from a, the perspective of a designer and somebody who's doing a lot of work in responsive, what the role of the content management system is in that process. And I think to me, both of these conversations, the, or both of these articles, the one from, on the viewpoint problem, viewpoint problem, and the ones that, that Mark wrote, address how much the things that we talk about as content are really design problems and problems that we think of as design problems are really content problems. Or it's, it it's, if you're publishing something for print, maybe it's easier to see, Oh, okay, I get it. Like, this is what my art director does and this is what my editorial staff does. And they don't really have to worry about each other's jobs. But here in this crazy new multi-device world that we live in, like, We don't have that luxury. We all have to think. There's not really a good way just to
0: like throw stuff over the wall and assume that you know the other team will go and take care of it.
1: Right. Like that's oh, that's a design problem. They can figure out how big to make the typeface.
0: No, no, not really. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. No. I it it was it was interesting because I remember I think some of the initial conversations that ended up turning into that post on adaptive adaptive content management. And um, I think that was one of the first times I really started thinking about just like some of the nuances of what some of those phrases like adaptive versus responsive in content might mean and where some of those overlap points were. And it just it, in some ways, it it reminded me of that whole, you know, there are two hard problems in, in computer science and, and one of them is naming things. It's like <laughs> it it's it, Ironing out the vocabulary even just for a new set of techniques can be really, really tough.
1: Yes, I think the, the fact that this field changes so quickly and there, I think there's always this tension between we need a more precise way to describe this this related but somehow new thing that's come up versus, oh, you're just doing a land grab to put a label on your slightly different but not really all that different thing so that you can brand it for yourself and, and then profit.
0: Name a new type of content after yourself, you know.
1: Right. Yeah. We're 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 always finding new elements and then naming them after ourselves.
0: One of the things that I, I, I think we, we talked about this a little while ago. One of the articles that I really feel like, it, well, it's, I'm not even sure it's an article. It's, uh, it's called Navigating the New Multi-Screen World. Right. Um, the
1: Google Research Report? Yeah. I mean, heck, when Google puts out a research report, like, pay attention. They have all the data. They know everything.
0: Yes. It's this, relatively in-depth piece of research. I think there were something like, uh, you know, 1,000 or 1,500 different participants. But what they were talking about was how these people who have multiple devices, like a laptop and a tablet or a smartphone or something like that, what kind of patterns of usage occur, you know, begin to appear across those devices? How does a person work with all of those different devices they have. Are they just, do they do certain kinds of things on their phone and then they come home and they do other kinds of things on their desktop. Do they do the same stuff? Um, and some of the, some of the results were really, really interesting. Like a lot of um, task shifting, like where they would, you know, they would be out and someone would send them information or they would come across something and they would get that on their, um, you know, on a portable device. And, sort of skim it, and then transition to reading it on a different device. And it was something like 75% of people engaged in, that, um, engaged in that, you know, usage pattern. And, you know, some of it, you know, feels like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting and novel. But it also feels like it was a real just nail in the coffin of, you know, of any kind of assumption that it was still okay to do, totally separate mobile and and desktop websites where you know a given url on one doesn't bring up the same stuff on the other because that's some i mean i think we've all you know had the the classic you know you go to the, you know, you have a URL for like a product page. You go to it on a, on a phone and it redirects you to the homepage and says, hey, would you like to download our app? And you go, no, no, I just, I had this <laughs> URL. I, I want the thing at that URL and you can't get it. Um, and the idea that like that, that cross device sharing is such a common behavior when it's possible really, I feel like gives some teeth to the argument against that um, firewalled mobile versus desktop approach.
1: Yeah, I think that was one of the strongest pieces of evidence I've seen for being able to say, hey, you don't have different users with different tasks or different goals on desktop and and mobile. You just have one set of users. You have just one set of customers, and they want whatever it is that they want from you, and they're not choosing what, what they want to do or what they want to look for based on the device that they have. They're just choosing whatever device is most convenient for you. Right. And the idea that, that – and, and, and I know this is somewhat um, paradoxical for a lot of people that I talk to, but the idea that, no, instead, instead of saying, well, mobile is totally different, we, can, you know, we should do something different and better on mobile. In fact, our, our, our goal should be to try to keep it as consistent as possible. In in a lot of ways, because if somebody is task switching, if they are trying to find something that they had previously looked up on one device and now now are trying to find it, they may be missing a lot of spatial cues as to where that lived on the page or mm-hmm. where it, you know, how where how they found something before. Oh, because
0: like their ability to navigate back to it is right. compromised if the navigation structure looks different on the on mobile too.
1: They don't have the same visi- or, or visual or physical cues. S- so at least try to keep the labeling consistent. You know, at least it's like, let's try to keep as much consistent as we can. And I think that's somewhat of a radical point of view. Even, I've even been a little bit hesitant to go out and say, well, I don't know, maybe, I mean, you know, sure, you can change things up. And now I'm a little, you know, especially having seen that report from Google, I'm a little bit more like, hey, let's just remember that you have the same person who may be coming back and, and wanting to engage with you on the same information, same pool of content. I think it's like you said. It's like they think of this as different windows on the same stuff. And so if you change up your their mental model of it and say, oh, no, no, it's a different window on different stuff with different labels and different organization, it's it's really hard for them to f- figure out how to engage with you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and- I think it's it's especially interesting considering how many different um how many different uh device manufacturers and you know the the big ecosystem companies like uh Microsoft and and Google and uh and Apple are really working towards making that kind of device interoperability just a really smooth just integrated part of it like bookmark sharing and tab sharing on the Safari browser and in Chrome um and like Google's gla- Google Glass um is something that they're working on like which like my my Xbox now has a web browser built into it and I've heard heard tell that if I have a Surface I can do things like you know browse a web page and like just transition between which device I'm viewing it on I haven't done that yet it might just be in a commercial I'm not sure but it feels like a lot of different companies are working on similar ways of making that that device transitioning even more seamless and i think you know sites that don't account for that are really going to be the this the weird speed bump as that becomes more common
1: yeah at uh, at bd comp breaking development this year jason grigsby gave a, gave a great talk on you know the, the future of mobile being your tv set <laughs> and some of the challenges for for getting content on on that platform and his partner, the fantastic Liza Danger Gardner, uh, gave a really amazing talk this year called "The Essence of Content on the Future Web." And I think both of them really addressed this challenge of saying, "How are we going to? How how are we going to really embrace not just the couple of platforms that we're thinking of right now, but..." think holistically about the future and it's going to mean going back in and having to, you know, Liza's great analogy is like, like, she's like, it's like we're trying to get the chocolate out of an M&M and you know, it's like we've, we've created these beautiful, you know, nice, nice, perfect, smooth containers that hold all of our delicious chocolatey content. But if we want to get it back out and put that someplace else, the only way we can do it is by smashing the M&M. And right now I think that's what we see is, is, going back into these beautiful, you know, shiny web pages we've made and trying to get the content back out so we can get it on your TV or make it navigable on your mobile device is is like smashing an M&M. Yeah,
0: it, it there's a reason the uh, data migration portion of any big CMS project is is where, you know, there be dragons uh, in a big way. It's it's there there's so much stuff that just feels I guess kind of trapped in there and it it's it's actually a really big constraint on a, lot, on a lot of new designs coming out. You know, if there's any kind of, you know, legacy content or existing stuff that you've got to work with, it's you can't simply pretend that there's a blank slate you're designing from. You know, it's how are you actually going to get all the old stuff to fit into it is a big concern.
1: Right. It, it, like, you can't pretend there's a blank slate. I think that's probably... Maybe that's like the rallying cry for twenty thirteen <laughs> Like the, the idea that you can think about any new platform and imagine that this is your fresh start is uh, yeah is I mean not that that any new platform isn't an opportunity to go back and and fix some things that are broken or improve outdated processes or clean up your content, that that it certainly is. But you're not doing that from tabula rasa. You're doing that from saying, right, we've got a big pile of garbage here and we need to sort through it all and make it better.
0: Yeah, and th- there's basically the acknowledging that there's an existing world that this is going to be a part of, even if, you know, you're designing the first ever web page to be viewed on this device or whatever. Yeah. <sighs> there's actually... That actually reminds me. There there was a really, really interesting article that came out in technologyreview.com, uh, Why Publishers Don't Like Apps. Um, it, it was really, really interesting because it was basically an exploration of, you know, it, it, well, it, it feels like there's been a bunch of back and forth conversation over the past probably, you know, two years, you know, maybe a little more about how everything was going to be moving towards apps. You know, with smartphones and, you know, the tab- the tablet ecosystem all being heavily app-driven, the idea that, you know, web pages for, like, a publication would just become passe, you know, given time. You know, everybody would need their app. And, like, Apple's, you know, newsstand, um, you know, that came out, you know, uh, you know, on the iPad was such a huge, you know, made, made such a huge splash. Um, but this article, Why Publishers Don't Like Apps basically just explores the fact that it's really been tough going for a lot of publishers. Um, both because, you know, in, in some cases um, users don't necessarily want apps. They just want to go and read stuff the way they're used to doing it. You know, firing up a separate app that, you know, you can't copy t- text and, you know, paste the URL to a friend easily. Um, those are all frustrations for the users. But then in addition, the, the overhead of trying to produce um, a separate uh, you know a completely separate um, you know piece of software to go along with you know this this new device you 're targeting is really, really rough for publishers that were just starting to get over the hump of really actually doing like web production and print production simultaneously. Um, I think there's one quote that I thought was really interesting. He says, absurdly, many publishers ended up producing six different versions of any editorial product, a print publication, a digital replica for web browsers and proprietary software that they might need to support a digital replica for landscape viewing on tablets Something that wasn't quite a digital replica for portrait viewing on tablets and a kind of, you know, an ugly hack for smartphones and then ordinary HTML pages for their websites. And like just that the multiplying effect of the work that goes into that is just brutal.
1: It's, I, when I first saw all the enthusiasm from publishers about creating apps, I think there was a sense that. This was going to be an environment that they could control and that advertisers were going to rush in and just be thrilled to throw ad dollars against these glossy new, ad, you know, glossy new slick app-like publications. And sadly, as with so many other things in the publishing industry, the advertisers did not rush in with big buckets of money. And the, the, the challenge for everybody is in the workflow. it's it's just you're you're just doubling or tripling the amount of work that you have to do you know five five six times more work some in some cases and i I know you work with publishers i work with a lot of publishers who realize they haven't really even effectively streamlined the workflow between print and web yet there's a lot of there's a there's a lot of band-aids and Rube Goldberg contraptions behind the scenes, and a so lot let's of it add five more channels right, I mean a lot of it is like oh yeah we um we have one of our interns copy and paste the text out of the out of the inDesign files and then we put it on the web web page. It's like, okay, wow, how is that going to work when you're trying to get six new publications out next month
0: well, and one of the things that I found very interesting is you know some of the places that we're talking to at this point like. They deal with actual real-time news in some cases where they actually need to be able to push out updates relatively quickly when there's big news. And, you know, the the idea of producing six completely parallel, you know, different tracks of content publishing, just the the pressure that that puts on any kind of time-sensitive stuff is, just, again, just really, really nasty. And I, so I think it's, it's very interesting because there's, there's all this talk about, you know, the number of different publishing channels that are out there are that's only increasing. You know, we're not going to come to some sort of magical day in the future where all the users settle on where they want to get their stuff. Um, but then how to survive in that kind of environment, is it feels like the, the new big challenge of, you know, how to really, how to really actually walk that out.
1: If only we vexing users could just make up our minds and agree <laughs> on one platform. AOL or CompuServe. Just pick one. Just pick one. AOL. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, now that is the platform with the future.
0: <laughs> oh, my. There's also, I think, there's one that you mentioned uh, that you have uh, uh, on this list that I was curious, because um, I know you've talked about it a bit. It's, the, it, it's titled Great Works of Fiction, The Mobile Context.
1: I love of that article by Stephen Hay, where he, I think really, it's probably one of the best pieces I've read that just hits head on. The idea that it is just a myth that you can, I, you can guess what somebody wants because they have a mobile device in their hand. And that you can give you know that your job as a designer is supposed to be to give somebody some subs subset of the the full content because you you know what somebody's going to want and it it's like I, I can see how people want to believe that I can see how people want to believe that mobile is something different and so they they think you have to go in and make totally different choices. And I think the truth is it's like I've seen this from the data from my clients, you see this from the the data from this research report from Google. Most of what people are talking about when they say let's do something different on mobile, what they actually mean is our desktop site is filled with clutter and crap and we should get rid of some of it. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean do something different for mobile. It means our users actually only want a streamlined experience. And the truth is, it's like, I think we do a lot of harm in the field by talking about that. Like that's a mobile solution. It's not. It's a solution for everybody. And we'd be a lot better off if we addressed that as a systemic problem across all of our sites and platforms and devices, and then just started making better decisions overall. Or, People when they talk about designing for context or designing for the mobile context, the examples that they tend to use are all from travel. Yeah, and that comes up. And I, you know, I, I, I tell people, I'm like, if you mean optimize for the local context, then say the local context, because calling that the mobile context actually, it, it what you're doing is is you're conflating. Me doing something when I am in a very specific local environment. You're conflating that with things that I do on my mobile device. You know, anytime whether I'm lying on my couch or I'm at my desk or I'm waiting for the bus. And you know, I know, I know, it's confusing. We use the word mobile to mean all kinds of not mobile things, but it's okay. We still We'll talk about the dial tone and uh we've gotten over the fact that we don't dial phones anymore so you know what we can we can expand that language
0: i'm pretty sure someone has like an iphone case with a rotary dial so you know somebody's holding out.
1: i am totally i that's going to be my killer app i'm going to make <laughs> I, I, it's going to use the touch screen and you're it's going to allow you to use a rotary dial it's going to be a huge pain in the ass you're, you're going to be like God, I'm so sick of having friends that have nines and zeros and their numbers like I stand here waiting.
0: It's the slow VoIP movement ah <laughs> oh, yeah it i well, I think like the the classic thing you know that i've I've seen a couple of different people talk about is like, oh well, you know, a banking site it you know. It, if if you make too heavy of an assumption about things like local, local context and you know and and geolocation, what you get is you know a banking app that if you happen to be looking at your bank's website on your phone, all it ever does is tell you where the closest ATM is, despite the fact that what you are actually trying to look up was information on you know transferring your four hundred one k.
1: Exactly. Speaking as someone who's working with a couple banks right now, I would say this is a huge problem in the financial services industry. The some of the numbers that I've seen around how much adoption they've gotten on their mobile banking really are exciting and, and also a little bit terrifying. <laughs> it's almost
0: like everyone wants to use it. And as soon as it's even remotely usable, people flock to it.
1: People love it. I mean, it, it, the the numbers that, that I have seen around how many mobile only customers some of these banks have, which shock you. And, you know, to me, I think that's a, it, that's a great testament and, Credit to the interaction designers—they have creating the the new mobile banking systems. It's like they've made tools that are really easy for people to use, and people like them. And guess what? They have no content available. It's like <laughs> Zoom, like oh yeah, all anybody wants is to be able to access their banking information and find the closest ATM, and that's all we have to provide them. And you, I, you, I think you can see the marketing departments go. Hey, wait a minute! <laughs> They're missing. It's a huge missed opportunity. It's like sometimes you're right. Sometimes people need that information. They want to know how to move their four hundred one k. They want to know, you know, if information about products and services. It's like you should be giving that to them in whatever device they want to get it on.
0: Um, there, there's one article that I thought was interesting that Mark Bolton actually has written about this same topic, but one of the good real like roundup, um, articles was the state of responsive advertising, a publisher's perspective in uh, net magazine. Um, it, I mean, I think it captured the idea that there aren't necessarily any great, you know, silver bullets right now, but, it talked basically about the problems that responsive design is starting to present to ad driven sites. Um, no one, well, you know, for a long time, you know, all of the major ad service, you know, ad, ad, you know, serving, you know, companies haven't really had any way to do things like sell a particular ad slot that could be in the sidebar or it could be interstitial inside of the body of, you know, a a long article or it could be in the footer, you know, depending on what kind of device you're looking at it on. Um, Because just that's not the way that online ads have been sold for years and years and years. And uh, some of the people like, um, I think Mark Bolton um, has written, has written a couple of interesting articles about this, just sort of sussing out the problem and, and talking about, work that he was doing on a couple of recent redesigns um, just figuring out ways that it could be approached like how to set up consistent ad units to sell to advertisers on a large site that um, they instead of saying what you're getting is a, a you know a block with these pixel dimensions that will be at this spot on the screen but rather talking about it sort of in that structural way you know what you're going to be getting is a particular type of you know ad content that will be Close to this other content wherever it appears, you know stuff like that. Um, but but the the lag time for the actual ad sales industry to catch up to some of those you know proposed solutions to this that's actually taking a lot longer. And I think that that state of responsive advertising article I think at least gave a good sort of overview of where things are at and how things are going.
1: Yeah, I liked that article a lot because I think it it did a nice job of. Of addressing both the technical complexity of the problem but also the the human side of it, which is that the the ad sales industry is not a fast ev- evolving space <laughs> this is an industry that is really optimized for slow change and for being extremely conservative and i I will be very interested to watch this this space, like what happens with the publishers that have adopted responsive designs over the next 12 months or so, just to see what happens with advertising. And I'm actually really surprised that some of the major um, organizations like the IAB and the Online Publishers Association haven't stepped up to move more quickly. I think the growth of advertising on the web came, you know, 2004-ish when the... When the IAB finally launched their the, the Universal ad package, and you know the upside of that was that you had one really consistent set of sizes that everybody could cut creative for, and that made it just you know much more flexible and reusable across all these different sites. And the downside was that you had one really standard set of sizes) <laughs> my God, if I had to see one more, if I had to design one more site around that stupid square rectangle ad, I was going to lose my mind. And I think it's like, that's the tension that we're seeing here is do we want more forced standardization coming from the, you know, the 300 pound gorilla that is the IAB or do, you know, is this something that we're just going to have to fight out in the mud for a couple more years until we figure things out? I think we should probably fight it out for a while, but I think there's also going to be some publishers that don't have that long. Mm-hmm.
0: And I, I think some of the publishers that are large enough and have enough traffic that they were able to negotiate some of their own ad packages, you know, in and of themselves. I think they're probably the ones who, at least right now, are in the best position um, because they're not necessarily having to go through, you know, like services that serve up all of the ads. They're just talking directly to the companies that want to advertise on their sites. And I think they may be in a slightly better position, but it'll definitely be interesting how things play out.
1: It will indeed. I think the, you're right. The larger publishers are will be able to hopefully ride this out. But, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, mobile, or this problem of mobile and responsive advertising, it's going to kill some of the publishers.
0: Well, okay. So I think we we've we chewed through a bunch of these articles. What what do you think? What do you think some of the interesting stuff coming up in in 2013 might be? I mean, there's there's a bunch of stuff that feels like it's brewing right now, and 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 you know none of the stuff is slowing down except for everyone recovering from New Year's Eve. Um, but like, what, what what kind of things do you think we're we're probably going to be seeing?
1: You know, I think it it for me, I think the issue sort of hangs off of two of the the main threads that that have come up as we've been talking. One of them is moving away from the page-based model toward a more fluid, flexible, API, stream-driven approach. And on the flip side of that, how do you make the user experience accessible and findable and navigable for a customer who may be looking for the same information or may want to, to complete a task over time across different devices. How do we balance those two objectives? One of which I think, I mean, honestly, especially in the way that I just described it, one of which is is us identifying, okay, what, how do we create the best user experience? How do we create the best user experience for the person who's coming in on one particular device? And how do we acknowledge the fact that the user experience probably spans devices and spans different contexts, and we don't have really great tools or mechanisms for deeply understanding what someone's process is or should be as they're using multiple devices to to complete a single task. And what we come up with for the user experience should optimally, ideally, I think be something that's maintainable and, and buildable. And you know that there there probably will be some big tension there around what's easy for us to build, what's easy for us to maintain, and what does the user really want.
0: And I think like I, I'm I'm thinking along similar lines, although like a, a lot of my background is on the on the on the development and implementation side. It's a lot of my thoughts are, you know, how are the CMSs that we're working with going to be ready for those kinds of challenges too? And I think that's something that you know. Uh, Dean has, you know, written about a lot of Gadgetopia too. You know, the, this concept of the decoupled CMS sort of coming back into vogue, and I, I honestly think that's going to be one of the things that we're seeing a lot more um, movement towards over the next year or so. Um, with you know the 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 number of different publishing channels that are out there, I think we're going to see more and more specialization in CMSs trying to interoperate, so you can say. Well, instead of, you know, instead of the CMS being like a complete end to end solution where you you pipe content in on one side and baked web pages come out on the other saying, well, you know, maybe lots of different things could pull from it to to produce lots of different kinds of, you know, output formats like. You know, a smartphone could pull from it or, you know, your main web page could be displaying, you know, HTML pages or someone else's, you know, publishing or subscription feed could be pulling, you know, raw, you know, a a raw data feed from, you know, from your CMS or something like that. But I think a a lot of those, um, a lot of those sort of break walls between actually like creating and managing and then actually you know storing and then outputting the content i mean those i think it's becoming clear that trying you know a single tool that just consistently tries to do all of those things and doesn't play well with others it's really really hard um to keep pace with all of the stuff that's changing at this point
1: yeah i think the the i, I think you will get more and more people talking about apis Recognizing, like, oh, okay, we we may not have the tools or the processes that we need to actually support everything we need to do. And the, the answer, as as has has been in all kinds of technological waves in the past, is going to be middleware. It's Going to be great. how How can we take? How can we keep what we have and then put a layer on top of it? <laughs> Let's get you know, get get up to the next level.
0: Content frosting—that's the new trend.
1: I love it. It sounds like cake.
0: And who doesn't like cake? I love cake. Well, on that note, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. I hope you have a great 2013.
1: I wish you all the best in 2013 as well.